arguments. The case is submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 895916, Richard Demarest versus James Manspeaker. You know this woman is sitting on the left at me. Mr. Scarborough, you may proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. The question presented uh, for review in this case is whether a convicted prisoner who is summoned to appear as a witness in a proceeding in the Court of the United States is entitled to a witness fee pursuant to 28 United States Code, Section 1821. This was a convicted state prisoner. That's correct, Your Honor. For the time that that person spends in attendance at a court of the United States. The petitioner here, Richard Demarest, was in 1988 and continues to be a prisoner incarcerated in the state of Colorado, by the state of Colorado. In March of 1988, uh, Judge Jim Kerrigan of the United States District Court in Denver issued a writ of habeas corpus ad testificandum by which Mr. Demarest was transported from prison in Crowley, Colorado, to Denver County Jail, where he remained for a little more than a month. Uh, during eight days of that period, the trial in the underlying criminal case took place. On one of those days, Mr. Demarest testified as a witness for the defense. When the case was over, Mr. Demarest made an application to the deputy clerk in the district court to certify his entitlement to a witness fee pursuant to 28 United States Code Section 1825. That is the statute that governs the procedure whereby a witness applies for a fee when the witness is being paid by the United States. You mean when the witness is... The, the United States would pay the fee in this case? That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, well, because, well, that's because of this provision of 1825? That's correct, Your Honor. There, there, are, there are several related provisions involved. One is 1821, which provides generally that witnesses are entitled to a fee. Another is Section 1825, which sets forth the procedure for receiving payment of a fee when the witness is being paid by the United States. And when does it say the witness shall be paid by the United States? In a case in which the United States is a party, uh, and the, uh, the, in the case of a witness for the United States by the United States, in the case of a defense witness when the fees uh, cannot be paid by the defendant or the party. And this was, this was a federal trial in the, in the district court? That's correct, Your Honor. And just, just to review... If it's an ordinary witness, does he pay his own travel, or does somebody pay his travel? No, in the ordinary case, Your Honor, uh, if a person is going to serve as a witness in a case and the parties are able to pay the fee, you tender a witness fee 
and travel expenses to the witness when you serve the subpoena. That's what happens in the ordinary case. A fee plus travel. That's correct. Now, in this case, the government paid travel. Uh, in this case, the state of Colorado or the United States government, I don't know which, paid for the travel. That's right. Well, he didn't pay it. That's correct. He did not, Your Honor. Who paid his food? Uh, he was paid by uh, uh, the Denver County Jail, I assume. The fact is so not... the a county fee. jail fed him. That's correct. So his out-of-pocket expenses were zero. That's correct. And he is not asserting any right to expenses in this case. There is a specific provision in the statute in Section 1821 in subsections C and D, which entitle a witness to reimbursement for expenses. Mr. Demarest is not seeking reimbursement for any expenses. What he is seeking is a witness, the payment of the $30 per day witness fee uh, pursuant to subsection A1 of Section 1821, which provides for the payment of those fees. Mr. Demers made his application to the clerk of May the court in Denver. Was he a defense witness or a prosecution witness? Defense witness, Your Honor. He was a defense witness. Mr. Demers made his application to the clerk, uh, and the clerk referred the request to the assistant United States attorney. The assistant United States attorney denied the request on the ground that Mr. Demers was a convicted prisoner and therefore unentitled to receive a witness fee. Mr. Demarest, proceeding on his own behalf, thereafter filed this lawsuit, and he sued both the clerk and the deputy clerk, seeking to compel them to pay, to certify his entitlement to a fee, which then would be paid by the United States Marshal. Mr. Scarborough, the government says that a witness has to be subpoenaed under the statute before uh, he can be deemed to be in attendance under the terms of the statute. That's correct, Your Honor. That is the technical argument that the government makes with regard to the meaning of the statute. Mr. Demarest's position is very simple, and that is that if this statute means what it says, he is a witness, and he was in attendance at a court of the United States and served as a witness. If the words in attendance mean someone who appears and gives testimony, then he is that person. He also served as a witness, as we ordinarily understand the meaning of the word witness. The government makes a technical argument with regard to uh, the language in attendance and says that Mr. Demarest was not in attendance because he wasn't personally subpoenaed. Instead, he appeared pursuant to a writ of habeas corpus ad testificandum. That's accurate. He did appear pursuant to that, to that writ. Section 1821 doesn't mention the word subpoena, never uses it. Section 1821 doesn't define the word in attendance, except but, to but, say in attendance. But Section 1825 uses the term. Yes, yes, it does. It does use the word subpoena, Your Honor. The, that word is used in Section 1825 in the following way. Section 1825 first sets out how a witness for the government, in a case where the government is a party, is to be paid when the person is being paid by the United States. Then the statute goes on to say, in the case of defense witnesses, Summoned pursuant to a subpoena, the following procedure shall be used for payment. The word subpoena is not defined in Section 1825, but I submit that all it means, and that the common sense of it is, that there be some kind of formal process by which a court certifies a well, are you Are you now arguing that a writ of uh, habeas corpus ad testificandum is a subpoena within the meaning of this section? Yes, Your Honor. Certainly, I certainly... We're getting a little bit away from pure plain language now. Yeah, well, Your Honor, uh, we, perhaps we are. Yeah. Uh, the word subpoena also appears in Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 17A. That's the rule 
whereby a court that, that, that requires a court to order to issue subpoenas for the attendance of witnesses in criminal trials. What do you say with respect to a volunteer witness? Your Honor, I would say that a volunteer witness ought to be paid. Well, maybe uh, ought to be, but does the yeah. statute require it? Because uh, he's in, in attendance. It, in my view, Your Honor, the, in, the, in the first place, it's not necessary to answer that question in order to decide this case we submit, because Mr. Demarest did appear pursuant to a formal procedure. Judge Kerrigan uh, issued the, an order that, uh, that gave him oversight, judicial oversight, uh, over the proceedings. There are cases in lower court cases, district court cases, that have held even, that even a witness who appears voluntarily is entitled to receive a fee. That seems to me to be the better view. Uh, but, uh, but it's not necessary to decide that question. What does, what does in attendance mean in, in, in that event? I, I thought I was going to ask you what, what you thought. I, I assumed in a subpoena, in attendance might mean the dates set forth in the subpoena. You're, you're in attendance on those right. dates. But if you're coming voluntarily, you know, you, you, you don't know how long the trial's going to be. You come, you hang around for, is only the days you appear? Are those the only days? Or? This, is, this court has held that, uh, that in attendance in Hurtado, uh, the 1973 opinion from this court, which is the only case construing Section 1821, that in attendance refers to the time spent in readiness to testify while the trial is taking place. So if you choose to come uh, five days early, uh, so long as the trial is going on at that time, uh, you're in attendance. As you know, when you're trying a case, Your Honor, some, you, you, right. you may subpoena witnesses for the opening day of trial. You may, you may sure. subpoena them for the opening day of defense. It's hard to know when exactly they'll be, they'll be required to attend. But the time they spend away from their ordinary occupations and in readiness to uh, testify, as I understand this Court's opinion in Hurtado, they're in attendance. And, and incidentally, the... The Congress subsequently amended Section 1821 to incorporate the Hurtado ruling, and uh, and it seemed to me adopted that view of, of the words in attendance. Made by the government uh, weren't made below, were they? They were not. Uh, there, 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 were, there were no opinions. Uh, 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 the, it, there, there's, not, there's nothing about Section 1825 in the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals opinion or in the district court opinion. And as I understand this court's ordinary rule, uh, when certiorari is not granted to review a particular question and the issue has not been either raised or decided below, the court will not ordinarily uh, reach out to decide it. Uh, the government does not, as far as I can tell, offer any special Well, a respondent reason. can, uh, <clears throat> a respondent can uh, <clears throat> ask the court to decide a case on another ground. The respondent can always if, if the record does it supports it. Yes, Your Honor. The, but the respondent re can always ask. A respondent is also expected to raise any non-jurisdictional objections to reaching the question presented in the motion, to, uh, the brief in opposition to certiorari. That, that's correct, Your Honor, and, and it was not raised in the brief in opposition to certiorari. It seems to me. Excuse me. If if we construed uh, subpoena to mean only subpoena. Would that uh, and and and, and uh, imposed in effect the subpoena requirement, as the government argues, would that be consistent in every respect with the practice which is actually obtained? It depends on what you mean by the practice, uh, Your Honor. Uh, the, the government has. I taken think you the, probably know more about that than I do. So the, the, I'm going to let you define that. Okay. The, the government has taken the position, at least with regard to prisoner witnesses, that. That they do not ever pay the fees of prisoner witnesses. Those persons are not... Regardless of, of who calls them? 
Yes, that's my understanding, Your Honor. Uh, if you mean the practice as employed by the courts under Rule 17A, the, the, the rule of criminal procedure that, that, uh, that by which courts issue uh, subpoenas, the courts routinely issue writs of habeas corpus ad testificandum pursuant to Rule 17, as well as subpoenas directed to individuals who are free to move about. As Judge Ebell said, uh, dissenting below in this case, Suppose the case of a person who is in a mental hospital, a mental institution, is not free to go. That person may not be personally subpoenaed. That person may be brought to court by virtue of a process other than one entitled a subpoena. Is that person not entitled to receive a witness fee? Or suppose well, that, the case... What other process would it be for a person? I don't understand I, I, why a person I, it, in a mental process, a it, hospital has it's no special process for It them. might be a writ of habeas corpus, Your Honor. Oh, and then they'd be comparable to this. Yes. And, but and not if they're in a private uh, mental institution, I don't think. Probably not. No. But you're just saying if, if they're in a different area of government custody, I don't know why that's a different case than this one. I don't either, Your yeah. Honor, but I take it the government's position would be that person is not entitled to a fee. Correct. Uh, for example, in the case of a witness who is detained because he's unable to post a bond for his own trial, which is coming up, and is then subpoenaed or, or is compelled to attend as a witness in another trial, is he unentitled to a fee because he's not going to be personally subpoenaed? He's going to be, he's going to be compelled, his jailer is going to be Well, but, but you raise an interesting question. What about the defendant in his own trial? Is he in attendance? And does he get a fee? I don't defendant think in his own trial uh, is, is, is I, I would say he's in attendance. But they've uh, never paid them not, fees. That's right, Your Honor. The, the normal understanding of the word witness is, uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, a person who's not a party, but a person who attends a trial of a party and testifies. It's also true, literally, that a person who is a party te- may testify. You say that the prior, the, when a defendant is testifying, the defendant is not a witness within the meaning of the statute. That's correct, Your Honor, not within the meaning of 1821. It seems to me that the government's position in this case rests not really upon these linguistic distinctions about the words in attendance and uh, witness, but instead about a, on a perception of the purpose of this statute combined with administrative practice. And I would like to spend just a few moments dealing with those two, I think, more central points. The, the argument is made by respondents from the legislative history of this statute that its purpose is to compensate the average witness for the time that that witness spends testifying and the costs that the witness incurs. From this, the government leaps to what I think is a remarkable conclusion, and that is... Costs, Mr. Scarborough, in the sense of loss of income and that sort of thing? Yes, two kinds of costs, Your Honor. One would be lost income, the other would be out-of-pocket expenses, some of which are reimbursed, but as a practical matter, probably all are not. The, don't witnesses get some sort of reimbursement for, for travel? Yes, they do, Your Honor. And uh, subsections C and D of Section 1821 deal with the situation in which you can, a witness is entitled to receive actual reimbursement for certain kinds of transportation and entitled to an allowance, subsistence, uh, a subsistence allowance, depending on other needs. But here, uh, what... Uh, which of the purposes, if any, of having a witness fee uh, was uh, <coughs> incurred by this defendant? He, that, that I, he was I, not a pocket of that, that, that's, that's, that's what I wanted to, uh, to turn to, Justice White. No, and, I, and, uh, and, and, the, and the point is simply this, that the government says it wouldn't serve any purpose to compensate a person like Mr. Demers. He incurs no costs. 
uh, he is not losing any compensation. Incidentally, that's not a point uh, that is established in this record. Uh, it is not known from this record whether, whether Mr. Demarest worked in the prison, if so, whether he made wages, and if he made wages, whether he lost them uh, when he was transported to Denver County Jail to testify. But be that as it may, it seems to me that the government's methodology stands the ordinary principles of statutory construction that have been announced by this court in case after case after case uh, on its head. And, and by that I mean that ordinarily this court has said a supposed purpose is not used to override the plain meaning of a statute uh, when the words are clear. And the reason for that is that ordinarily the meaning that Congress intended, its purpose, is to be understood from the language it uses. Congress doesn't speak in terms of purposes. It speaks in terms of legislative commands. And it is those legislative commands that are ordinarily the best evidence about what Congress intended. Furthermore, there is nothing inconsistent between the purpose that the government supposes Congress had and paying a fee to convicted prisoners. And the reason is this. Congress was undoubtedly aware that people do not suffer the same kinds of economic losses or lose the same amount of compensation for testifying. Congress undoubtedly was aware that many people don't lose money at all. People who live on fixed incomes, people who, are, who, are, who survive by independent means, there are all kinds of people who do not necessarily suffer any economic loss by virtue of testifying, but the statute simply says all witnesses, a witness, is entitled to a fee. Mr. Scarborough, how do you, what is your explanation of, uh, of 1825A? Uh, let's assume we agree with you that they're entitled to a fee. 1825A uh, uh, says what procedures, uh, what certi certifications are needed with respect to uh, those witnesses entitled to fees uh, who have been subpoenaed. Now, what about witnesses who haven't been subpoenaed? It's not clear from Section 1825 at all. Which is One reading, peculiar. Yes, it's very peculiar. Section 1825 is, uh, has got a lot of problems if you, if you, if you look at a variety of, of situations. For example, it might be that a witness that does not appear pursuant to a subpoena is uh, required to be paid by the United States without regard to these requirements. Yes, well, I, I would say that is some indication that a witness who is not subpoenaed is not to be paid fees, period, since there's no provision for how they're to be paid. If there's any ambiguity about whether non-subpoenaed witnesses get fees, I'd, I'd say that certainly indicates how that ambiguity ought to be resolved, wouldn't you think? That's possible, Your Honor, but it seems to me that the main point ought to be what is intended by the use of the word subpoena in this statute, in, in Section 1825. The same word appears in Section 17A, exactly the same word. Courts routinely issue writs of habeas corpus ad testificandum pursuant to, to, to 17A. They, there, no distinction is made between personal subpoenas and subpoenas directed at the custodian of an individual who is going to be produced for a trial. It seems to me that the purpose of this language, if, it, if it, the, the idea being expressed is that there is some kind of formal process, judicial oversight, if you will, that enables a court to screen the number of people who are called as witnesses and determine that they are material. Well, we should construe 1825 according to its purpose, but not 1821? <laughs> I don't think you should construe 1825 at all, Your Honor. Uh, uh, I, it, it's not within the grant. It, it wasn't reached below. 
Uh, it was an argument made for the first time in the briefs on the merits. But all the government... We can, we can nonetheless take it into consideration along with 1821 if we feel it's relevant, I suppose, in deciding the question presented. Certainly. Certainly. Mrs. Scarborough, would, would I be helping you out if I suggested that 1825A was directed not to the question of who gets paid, but to the question of who has to issue the certificate, which is a condition precedent to being paid, and that, and that it is with respect to certain defense witnesses subpoenaed that there is a distinction made about the issuance of the certificate as evidence for the payment, and that that's the only thing that 25A is directed to. That is a possible reading of Section 1825, Your Honor. Can you think of a better one from your side right now? Certainly. Sounds so to me, Your Honor. Okay. I, I, I want to underscore it's, it, that this Court in Hurtado, the gov- one, of the, one of the cases, the, the principal case the government relies upon for its, its, its uh, definition of the word in attendance is Hurtado against the United States. And in Hurtado, this Court held that the alien witnesses were in attendance. You will recall that in that case, the, 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 the alien witnesses had been arrested for failure to post a bond pursuant to former rule of criminal procedure 46, incarcerated by the United States Marshal and produced by the Marshal at the trial. They were not personally subpoenaed any more than Mr. Demarest was personally subpoenaed. They were detained witnesses. It just seems to me far-fetched to think that Congress, in Section 1821, with not having used the word subpoena at all, and, le- and using the word in attendance, we presume, in its common sense and ordinary meaning, intended to require a, a, a document with a particular label, an instrument with a particular label, uh, before a witness is entitled to receive a fee. Mr. Scarborough, uh, did Mr. Demarest uh, think up of this claim by himself? Or? Yes, he did, Your Honor. He thought it up all by himself, I guess. Uh, there are, I mean, there, had there been any prior... Uh, occasions? Yes, there had. Have there, have, have, has ever, has, has a prisoner ever been uh, paid a witness fee? Yes, actually, prisoners have been paid witness fees, and there's a 1939 Comptroller opinion uh, uh, in which the U- United States Marshal paid three prisoner witnesses a fee and then got into trouble getting reimbursement. We'll resume there at one o'clock. <laughs> We'll resume argument now in Demarest against Manspeaker. Mr. Scarborough? Thank you, Chief Justice. I, I just have a couple of more points that I'd like to make, and, uh, and then I will sit down. Uh, I, I want to make a couple of points about the purpose of this statute. We left off before lunch talking to some extent about the purpose of the law. The language of Section A-1 of Section 1821, 28 United States Code, states as follows, except as otherwise provided by law, a witness in attendance at any court of the United States, and here I'm skipping a bit, shall be paid the fees and allowances provided by this section. Congress does not state witnesses who lose compensation shall be entitled to a fee. Congress does not state witnesses who incur certain kinds of expenses 
It simply says, witnesses. Mr. Demarest may not be the average witness. He may not have incurred out-of-pocket expenses. He may or may not have actually lost compensation. But that fact, I submit, entitles him no less to a fee than it does to other classes of people who suffer no loss, either in compensation or expenses. And there are many such classes of people that immediately come to mind, including people living on retirement incomes, people living on fixed incomes, many others. Uh, very often employers, uh, people who have no income, People, uh, uh, very often employers uh, actually continue to pay wages to their employees, even though those employees are taking a day to serve as a witness in a case. There are many good reasons why Congress may have chosen to legislate in an, in an over-inclusive fashion or in a generality, uh, such as the use of the word witness, including administrative convenience. And there may have been another reason. Members of Congress may have felt that witnesses are, should receive some token compensation for acting as a witness in a court case. It might improve... But on that point, I'm just curious, will you point out on, in your brief at page 37 that back in the earlier days, the prison inmates forfeited all their rights and their time and services belonged entirely to the government. That was the prevailing view. If that was the view of Congress when the statute was addressed, drafted, what, which way does that cut? The statute has been, uh, of course, amended 11 times uh, since its original adoption in 1792. As we understand it, uh, prisoners could not even testify. Uh, they, they were infamous persons. There, there were lots of categories of people who could not testify. Um, and uh, convicted prisoners was one such category. That disability, which existed at common law in various states and uh, under federal law, uh, fell away over the period from 1850 to 1920. Uh, during that period of time, of course, Congress amended this statute. Uh, and uh, it seems to me that the best operating assumption is that whatever witnesses are competent to testify under the laws of evidence, uh, to be witnesses, uh, are, are to be included in the, in the term witness. Otherwise, it would be necessary to go back over this entire history and to go through categories of witnesses of, of, of for example, children, of, of people, atheists. There are all kinds of uh, categories of disability. And go through each of those categories one by one and decide whether Congress intended to include or exclude them. There's nothing in the legislative history of this statute that provides one scintilla of evidence that Congress ever intended to exclude convicted prisoners from children get $30 a day, by the way? Do children get... Uh, children? Yes. I don't know the answer to that question. I, I assume they're, if they're witnesses, they would, but I don't know. It just seems to me that it is... Uh, yes? Is there for 10 days and doesn't testify? That, that's correct, Your Honor. He would get 300 bucks. That's correct. And that's what he saw. He saw $300. That's good work for him. <laughs> well, he was doing as well as he could, I guess. Uh, he... he, he he, he was very careful to try to follow this court's opinion in Hurtado. This court's opinion in Hurtado said that you're in attendance, even though you're not testifying, when you're in readiness to testify. And, uh, and that's the only claim he made. You would think this would have been settled long ago, uh, Mr. Scarborough, uh, but uh, this is one of the few people who had the nerve to make this claim, I suppose. Uh. <laughs> 
mean? <laughs> but has it ever been adjudicated before? Uh, it has been adjudicated, Your Honor. There but in his favor? Uh, not adjudicated in his favor, Your Honor. No, it is not. No, it has not ever been adjudicated in his favor. It's been adjudicated not in his favor. That's correct. Many There's, times? Five times. Five times, especially when Congress is amending the law? Most, the most recent, the oldest opinion is 1970. All of the opinions take place between 1970 has the, and 1986, I believe. As the, uh, the, the practice was uh, up till... Uh, maybe up till now, not to pay these fees. Congress must have known that when it was amending the law. There is not one bit of evidence that Congress knew anything about it. Uh, the, 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 the government does make the point here that there have been 200 years of unbroken, consistent administrative practice. It seems to me that that's quite an exaggeration. Uh, and the idea... Yeah, it's 190? Well, no, I... <laughs> 198, 198. Uh, there may have been an incident occurring every other decade, Your Honor, no. uh, that could have come to the attention of Congress. There's a handful of judicial opinions and a handful of administrative opinions. This is not the sort of thing that made the front line headlines of the newspaper, the sort of thing that, would, that, that is apt to have come to the attention of Congress. And indeed, there is no evidence in the legislative history that this ever came to the attention of Congress. As I understand this court's, as I understand the government's position, I'm not sure I do, but I, but I think I do. In 1978, when Congress last amended the statute, there existed such an unbroken line of administrative determinations that Congress's failure to explicitly provide that convicted prisoners may receive a fee was, in effect, an amendment of the statute to adopt an administrative interpretation that convicted prisoners may not receive a fee. As I read this Court's cases, and the cases cited by the government in support of this, uh, this, this idea of congressional acquiescence, some link is required between the practice and Congress's knowledge. Indeed, this Court's cases, I think, are, 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 require much more than knowledge. They require some kind of substantial evidence of oversight, of adoption, of, uh, of approval of the administrative practice. There is no such evidence in this case. This is a statute addressed to the courts. It's not a statute that is addressed peculiarly to an administrative agency. It's, it's the business of the courts to, to interpret it. Thank you, Mr. Scarborough. Mr. Lazarowitz, we'll hear now from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Witnesses in federal and state court proceedings, for that matter, have received a modest fee for their service since at least the days of the first Congress. But despite such a 200-year record, no one has been able to find a single instance in either federal or state practice where a convicted prisoner lawfully and properly received a witness fee. Petitioner would write off this record as nothing... Excuse me, there, 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 there was an instance, as I recall, where he received... Uh witness fee, three of them and the... Yes, in 1939, the Marshal Service mistakenly provided witness fees to convicted prisoners. Or, or correctly did so and did, and did not do so mistakenly in all the other instances. That could the be the case. Well, uh, we think that we think that we can, that you should not write off this practice as nothing more than one of the longest-running violations of a statute's plain meaning in our, in our legal history. Instead, we submit that a closer look at the statute and the historical record shows the opposite is the case. As currently enacted, the federal witness fee statute provides that fees and allowances, excuse me, allowances shall be paid to witnesses in attendance at federal court proceedings. 
And the particular question here is whether petitioner, a convicted state prisoner, is entitled to receive the fees under the statute where he testified in a federal criminal case. In our view, petitioner is not entitled to receive the fees under the statute because he was not in attendance within the meaning of the statute. As the statute's structure and history suggest, in attendance means more than just being there. It also includes the process under which the witness appears in court. A prisoner such as petitioner appears in court under a particular process directed to his custodian, and that process is the writ of habeas corpus testificandum. In other words, in attendance in this statute means a witness who has been summoned to appear, summoned himself, and who then makes himself available and complies with that process. I suppose that, excuse me. Why do you read that much into the phrase in attendance? Mr. Chief Justice, we read the statute in that way for a number of reasons. One, it is we start with the language of the statute. And second, the structure of the statute, the structure of Section 1821 and 1825, which does not drop out of this case, notwithstanding our failure to raise the point in our brief in opposition that petitioner doesn't qualify to receive the certificate because of his default. 1825 speaks in terms of subpoenas. And a subpoena is the ordinary process for summoning witnesses to court. Well, Mr. Lazowitz, may I ask you two questions about that? The first is the same one which I asked your brother before lunch. And I, in a way, I made a, I guess I made a dangerous move in doing that because I just looked at the statute again and it struck me that it might simply be addressing the question of who has to certify that the witness was there as opposed to who has to, as opposed to identifying the kind of witness or the process by which a witness may be identified as compensable. Do you think that is a sound analysis or a sound suggestion? It's sound, but one that we don't agree with for these reasons. 1825 speaks in terms of, it's the procedure for paying the witness. How does the witness get paid? You can't be, so 1825 relates to 1821. If you're a witness, the only parties that 1825 speaks about, it's not parties, but persons, are those who would otherwise qualify under 1821. It doesn't make sense to provide for payment of fees under 1821 than not establish a procedure. The statute should be read together, which makes sense. No, but what I'm suggesting is that the procedure that 1825 addresses may well be simply a procedure for distinguishing some witnesses who cannot be paid without the certification of a public defender or a clerk of court as opposed to witnesses who may be paid on certification of a United States marshal. That's true, because in 1825A, you'll notice that there's no provision for paying when a government subpoenas a witness. The same requirements don't obtain. So I guess what that, well, that leads to my second question, and that is on your reading, which if I understand it correctly, is that there must be a subpoena before a defense witness may be paid. That would still allow the payment of a defense witness, I'm sorry, that would still allow for the payment of the witness fee to a prisoner called by the government, wouldn't it? No, and let me explain why. First of all, 1825, there are two separate questions, and one is the first question, the first point that we raised in our brief, admittedly belatedly, which is whether this particular 
witness, and we do concede that uh, Mr. Demarest was a witness, presented this, the right pieces of paper to be paid. The second question, and the broader question that's before this court, is what is the meaning of 1821? And we submit that it makes sense to look at Section 1825, the procedures, in order to understand what Congress was dealing with in Section 1821. And the use of the word subpoena, and again, this, there are no smoking guns in this case for our position. We are trying to piece together what's out there and understand the statute. And the fact that there's been this 200-year practice, starting with the first witness fee statutes, suggests to us that you can't write this case off as well, a matter of plain meaning. Fair enough, but, but the, the administrative practice issue is, is, a, is really a separate argument. Isn't it true that the only textual basis that you have for distinguishing uh, between some prisoners, at least, and non-prisoner witnesses uh, is the language of 1825A? You have no other textual basis for doing that, do you? Well, our textual basis is in 1821, which is in attendance. And we can... Yeah, but you're then, as I understand it, you're defining in attendance by reference to the process by which the person comes into attendance, and that's why you place the emphasis on the need for a subpoena for a defense witness, as, as indicated in 1825. That, that's part of it, Justice Souter, but our position is somewhat is broader, and that is, it's not, I, I don't want to mislead the court, that our position is if you have a subpoena, you get paid, if you don't, you don't get paid. It's a little bit more subtle than that. And then, then why don't you forget 1825 completely? Because we think 1825 supports our position and helps understand what in attendance means in 1825. Yeah, but if 1825 is supposedly reflecting your theory of what in attendance means, you've got to face the fact, haven't you, that 1825 only refers to defense witnesses, by which I assume they mean witnesses called by the defense, which would lead you to the conclusion uh, that a prisoner called by the government would get paid and a prisoner called by the defense would not. If all we were relying on were Section 1825, then your point would be well taken. But that's not all that we're relying on. Apart from 1825's reference to subpoenas, and I refer you also to 1825C, which speaks more generally in terms of subpoenas, we have, first of all, the the older statutes. If you look at where this statute came from, the earliest witness fee statutes in 1792 and 1799 spoke in terms of summoning witnesses. Summoning is the ordinary summoning means subpoenaing a witness. And we know that from Blackstone. We know that from contemporary practice that we cited in our brief. Congress then changed to the word attend. And it did so in 1796, but then returned to the word summoned in 1799. Did it ever put in subpoenaed witness? No, Justice Marshall. No. Don't you need that for your argument? It would make it easier, but we don't think we need need it. It It would help. The statute just says witness. The statute says witness and attendance. Witness is witness. If the witness just walks in out the street and says, I'd like to talk. If the judge lets him talk, that's a witness. Well, one of the reasons why we think it's not that... Is it not? Yes, that's true, Justice Marshall. And nobody called him. He just volunteered. And he would not be entitled to receive the fees under our position. Under your rule. Because he, again, and going back to the hypothetical that was raised this morning before lunch, take the example of a party. 
party testifies on his own behalf. It's been settled, and no one disputes, including petitioner, that a party witness is not entitled to the fees. Now, petitioner would defend that result by saying that a party is not a witness. We're not talking about parties. We're talking about the government and defendants. Yes, Justice Marshall. I'm trying to show that the statute's plain terms aren't as, are more ambiguous than at first glance. Now, we submit that a party witness isn't entitled to the fee, not because he isn't a witness, because of course he's a witness. He testifies in court. That's what a witness does. But because he is not summoned to court. Where do you get that out of the statute? The statute says witness. It says witness in attendance. You know what a witness is, and I know what a witness is. Yes, I do. Everybody in town knows. And it applies to about 25 different types. Those who are subpoenaed, those who volunteer, those who are party, those who testify under rip, and all. They didn't draw the line. You're drawing the line. And when you talk about how this never came up before, I don't know too many lawyers will take a case that involves $30. I don't know either, Justice Breyer. The fact that there's been this consistent practice requires us, consistent practice not just administratively, but from the courts and through history, suggests that there's something more going on here. Mr. Lazarowitz, is the practice consistent with your entire theory? That is to say, has it always been the practice uniformly not to pay witnesses unless they are subpoenaed? No. And let me clarify this, the apparent preoccupation with subpoena. That's your preoccupation. No, it's not. Our preoccupation is with process, and it's the particular process. The ordinary process for getting a witness to appear in court happens to be a subpoena. But, for example, let's say the assistant United States attorney needs a witness to come down to court tomorrow. He doesn't have the opportunity to subpoena him. He calls him up and says, I want you here in court tomorrow. And the witness, the man, appears in court tomorrow. He is entitled to a witness fee because the process, although he doesn't have the piece of paper in his hand, he is summoned by the equivalent, so to speak, of a subpoena to appear in court, and he complies with that subpoena. Is it the same if the defendant calls up his friend and says, come on down and testify for me, and he shows up? He would be a witness. The problem he would face would be 1825, the procedures. Well, your answer is that wouldn't be process that you're talking about, even though he just uses the phone like the prosecutor does. If that case occurred, I would imagine that the witness would be able to be paid. But he would have to have the subpoena. Despite 1825. Well, he wouldn't be paid unless he received the subpoena. The difference between treating those two situations differently is that the You like your witnesses, and you don't like the defense witnesses. No, Justice Scalia, it's not that at all. The marshal service is under 1825 pays witness fees. And the marshal service can rely on the United States attorney that this witness, in fact, was summoned and he appeared. He doesn't have that same relationship with the defense attorneys. And so he needs the piece of paper saying that this man, in fact, was called. And why is it that a writ of habeas ad testificandum isn't a form of compulsory process? It is a form of compulsory process, but it's not. There is a difference between a writ and a subpoena. And what was said this morning was somewhat misleading. Although we acknowledge that courts under Rule 17 use the terms writ and subpoena loosely and interchangeably for that matter, the authority to issue a writ 
is not Rule 17. It's the habeas corpus statute, 28 U.S.C. 2241. And that's what some of the cases that we cite in our brief, I believe the Third Circuit case, United States against Story, makes that point. Well, I don't see why that's so critical when you get back to figuring out what in the world 28821 means. And you haven't come to grips, I think, with uh, the provisions in 1821 that say, for example, a, a subsistence allowance shall be paid to a witness other than a witness who's incarcerated. And down in subsection E, an alien who's been paroled and so forth. Um, or is deportable, is ineligible to receive the fees. Congress certainly knew how to say who was going to get fees and who wasn't. Yes, and we think the, the way to read the statute and the way, the way we, we read the statute is to look at A1 and, and D1 differently. A1, the limiting factor, is attendance. D1, the limiting factor, is incarcerated. For example, if... The two, the two subsections are perfectly consistent because if D1 didn't accept incarcerated witnesses, a prisoner witness would be entitled to claim the subsistence allowance. But that doesn't mean he's back in A1 because our submission is he was not in attendance. You if say a, he's, he's not in attendance unless he's subpoenaed, except that, that if he's a witness for the prosecution, he doesn't have to be subpoenaed. That's, that's, the, that's the clear meaning you think inheres in in attendance? No. It means subpoenaed unless it's a prosecution witness. No. The, the meaning of in attendance refers to the process by which you're summoned and that you make yourself available by complying. But you say that you don't have to be summoned at all if you're going to be a witness for the prosecution. Yes, you are summoned, Justice Scalia. You may not be summoned by the formal piece of paper in those few instances where that's not practicable. But you're still summoned. You're summoned yourself. A prisoner witness is in a much different situation. It just takes somebody to call me up and summon me? I mean, I mean could, could, why can't the defendant call up somebody and say, I summon you to appear? The prosecution has no power to summon the person, does it? No. It's, if you don't have the subpoena, you can... Right. I mean, Try this hypothetical. They subpoena John Blue. They issue a subpoena for him, and they find he's in jail. But if he was not in jail, he would get paid. But if he is in jail, he's got a subpoena and a, a writ. He wouldn't get paid under your theory. Yes, Justice Marshall. And, then, and that makes good sense to who? Well, we think it makes good sense because that's what Congress has enacted, and that's the way it's been since 1792. Mr. Lazowitz, may, may I ask you a specific question about subsection D1? That reads, a subsistence allowance shall be paid to a witness other than a witness who is incarcerated when an overnight stay is required at the place of attendance and so on. As I understand it on your theory, this place of attendance uh, implies that the witness being referred to is one who has been summoned in the manner you describe. Is yes. that correct? If that is so, then why isn't the exception, other than a witness who was incarcerated, uh, a redundancy? Again, because it would never apply to such a person. A witness who was incarcerated, if... Because we have a separate subsection for the witnesses who are detained. Uh, right, we are... Yeah. We so, so this, I assume, can only apply to a witness who is incarcerated uh, as a prisoner otherwise. 
And it seems to me that on your reading, the exception is redundant because such a witness would never be in attendance. That's one way of reading it, Justice Souter. We don't, again, this is not the most perfectly drafted statute that I've ever come across. And no, but I, I guess my problem is I don't see how I can accept your theory of what attendance means without finding a redundancy in the exception. Well, there's another. There are other witnesses, potential witness who, witnesses, who, who need to be accepted under D-1. For example, a witness is subpoenaed to appear, an ordinary witness. He's not imprisoned. And he comes to court and he's housed overnight or for the week while the trial's going on, and he ends up in jail on unrelated charges. He's otherwise in attendance at that point. Well, on your theory, didn't he start out in attendance, but once he gets committed to jail on the unrelated charges, he is no longer? Well, he is in attendance in the sense that he's, he has complied with the process he has been summoned, but he's not entitled to the subsistence allowance because he, he finds himself in jail. Again, the, under our reading of the statute, in attendance is critical and does make sense of the, the rest of the subsections. It takes, it takes care of the uh, exclusion for the aliens because otherwise aliens would, uh, the, the few aliens. Let me just go back to Justice Souter's question. It seems to me you may have given up more than you should. Why does the witness have to be one who's in attendance for that to apply? Why couldn't it be a witness who has not been summoned, he's a volunteer witness, or he's, or he's the defendant himself? If the term witness includes witnesses who are in attendance and also the defendant, the defendant is not in attendance within the meaning of your statute because he wasn't compelled, why couldn't, it, why couldn't that refer to the defendant? Well, uh, that's, that's true, Justice Stevens. And again... And also, why couldn't it also include volunteer witnesses who would not be in attendance under your... But you know, you haven't really answered the question that was put to you earlier. Is a volunteer witness in attendance or not? It must be a practice that the government the, follows. The hypothetical, the, the, the one I can think of that isn't so far-fetched is uh, prosecutors in court trying a case, and at the luncheon recess, a guy in the back of the room says, I, uh, I heard something or I know something. Put me on the stand. That person would not be entitled to receive the witness fee because he is, hasn't been summoned. He's just there. And he's willing to testify, that's fine. I bet he normally gets the fee if he wants. Well, in terms of real practice, um, the, uh, not to be, make it more informal, but there's, the distinction is pretty much on the street, off the street. Uh, the government goes out of its, will go out of its way to pay witnesses who make an effort or who testify other than those who are excluded from the state. Well, I'm more interested in the volunteer witness for the defense. His brother comes in and testifies. You don't need to subpoena your brother. Does, does he get paid or doesn't he? I think he would probably in the sense that the same practice that the government follows. After he testifies, the defense attorney would get him a subpoena. And then he'd if go down the... that really under... The government will pay people that they aren't authorized to pay. Well, one example, Justice White, is the prisoners who aren't convicted. Now, under our construction of the statute, those persons fall outside the scope of the statute. And under our, the Department of Justice regulation, which draws a distinction between in custody and not, that person would fall out. But in 1900, the Comptroller General drew a distinction between convicted and non-convicted prisoners and said that if you're not convicted yet, you're entitled to the fee. So it's not as pristine as we'd like it to be. There are people that have received witness fees that otherwise perhaps might not. Counsel, but I don't know whether we've gotten it. 
But you admit that there's nothing in the legislative history that will help you. Oh, I th- we think there's quite a bit in the legislative history that helps. Give me just a little bit of it. Um, again, in the, the, the earliest statutes spoke in terms of summoning witnesses, which by definition would well, exclude... Wasn't this witness summoned? No, Justice Marshall. You don't say a red habeas corpus, our testifying is not a summons? It's, it, you just don't obey one. I mean, you'll see what happens. Well, actually, that points to another reason. You don't reason. call that a summons? No, I mean, serious. In the sense that it's processed, but the summons is directed to the custodian, and that's one of the distinguishing features here. The prisoner has no choice. He is going to be in court or or at the jail outside the court, whether he wants to or not. Isn't that true with a subpoena? No, it's different. You at least have Well, you disobey one, you'll find out. Yes, you will. But the prisoner doesn't even have that option. Unless he goes and... Well, then he's summoned. He's... Again, we are speaking and we are using words that, on the one hand, could be termed colloquial. I, I, I'm only using the word, one word, is witness. I don't need any other words. In the case of a, of a, prisoner, of a prisoner awaiting trial, uh, who, who is uh, uh, wanted as a witness, you say the Comptroller General's ruling allows him to be paid? In 1900, he, he drew that distinction. He would surely have to have a, subpoena, a, a habeas corpus ad testificandum to get there. A subpoena wouldn't do it, I would think. Oh, a subpoena would not. And again, that's in terms of where the custodial status of a witness moves away from the convicted prisoner, we do get into a gray area of whether they're entitled to fees under the statute. Under our construction of the statute and under the DOJ regulation, if you're in custody, that's the distinguishing feature. Custody in the sense of the state's custody, loss of liberty. Well, but does the DOJ, DOJ regulations cover this case? They do, but not in the sense that the, they're not, um, and we don't rely on them as, as a law or for a Chevron purposes, because the department, the attorney general promulgated those regulations as a matter of, um, so to speak, housekeeping. Well, that may, but, but, but does the regulation, under the regulations, this particular prisoner would not be entitled? He would not be, because the only persons in custody who are entitled to receive witness fees are the ones set out in the statute. How long has that regulation been in effect? It's only been, in a, it's, it's only been promulgated since 86, but that has been the department's practice since, since we can document the practice. From, this has been the practice from the 18th century. And the practice, if, if you, the reason why the history is important is the idea of a witness isn't simply the testimony in court. We think the process is part and parcel of being a witness, and we know that because of the idea of attendance. Attendance connotes getting there. And it, dis- and it brings out the point of the, volu- the volunteer witness. And a prisoner is in a much different position from everyone else who can be a witness. Because he is going to be at the courthouse, whether he wants to or not, whether he's going to testify or not. And that's the distinguishing feature that's consistent throughout the legislative record. And yes, we don't have statements in the legislative history that, well, of course, prisoners don't get paid. But this has been the practice, and the practice we submit stems from the earliest statutes. In terms of policy, the policy is somewhat murky, but to look at it from a practical standpoint, today it's obvious that most prisoners and convicted prisoners do work in their penitentiary. 
In the federal system, the average pay is 30, 40 cents an hour, and you can't work more than seven hours a day. Congress provided the witness fee not only to compensate for the burden of testifying, but as some sort of an inducement, as a, it's your duty, we will pay you. It seems somewhat far-fetched that Congress would be paying only $30 a day to your ordinary witness and the general category of witnesses, which is less than the minimum wage, but then turn around and provide that to convicted prisoners, which, are, which would be a bonanza. Do, do, do little children get uh, the witness fees? Yes, they do. Um, uh, and the department um, will usually make special arrangements to pay travel expenses for the child's guardians or parents. Um, including children who are too young to work under state law, I would assume. Uh, yes, including those. Um, prisoners, of course, are in a different position. And in terms of if the court wishes to look at the policy and how it makes sense, providing this sort of bonanza to prisoner witnesses would could create disincentives. And the disincentive would be to become a good witness. I want to be a witness. I have information to give to the court for both the defense and the government. And, we don't, and Congress, there's no reason to assume that Congress wanted to encourage that when we have this unending practice of drawing the distinction between convicted prisoner witnesses and all others. And we can see that as you get away from these, this, these two ends of the spectrum, there are difficulties. But the one thing we do know and no one has been able to dispute, is that convicted prisoners have fallen outside the scope of the statute since the beginning. And the reason is we submit the process. And I don't want to leave the court with the impression it's just a piece of paper calling it a subpoena or a writ, but the process of how the prisoner gets to court. And because he gets to court differently from everyone else, and differently from the way Congress envisioned witness attendance in 1792 and throughout its history, He's not entitled to receive that fee under the statute as it's currently written. No other questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lazerwitz. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.